Good evening, everybody. Did I try this before? Does this thing go up? No. <laughs> okay. That's fine. Really? Oh, look at that. Wow. Just got to have a little strength, huh? Okay. All right. <laughs> all right. Nice to see you all tonight. And uh, on this first Sunday evening of the new year, I don't know, are you guys the kind of people who make New Year's resolutions? Do you do all that kind of thing? I don't know. I used to do that. It kind of goes back and forth. I don't really do it anymore because I found out that it really can't be sustained through the year. Whatever I promise to do just doesn't work. It never does. Uh, I want something that is more sustainable so that I'm not sort of driven back and forth by the circumstances that will inevitably come upon us in a new year. Something's good and, and then we feel happy about that, right? Then something's bad and then we're all down. I want to be able to be a little bit more even keel and just something that can be sustained through the year. I want to be a more joy-filled person. Don't you? Because joy isn't something that sort of is affected by circumstances. It's kind of something that you have deep in your heart and it's there all the time and it can sustain you through anything. So I want to be a more joy-filled person. I want to pursue joy this year. And in just a minute, we'll, we'll get to uh, some, some tips on maybe how to do that and some things that we, can, that we can look for together. But before we get there and before we get to the book of Philippians tonight, let me just do a little thought experiment with you. Think for a minute about the most happy, joy-filled person that you know. Okay, not somebody who's, you know, sappy and all that, but somebody who is authentically joyful, right? They're grateful in their life. They have a confidence in God. They're optimistic when they talk about the future. They just breathe life and energy into you. You know some people like that? Yeah, I do. I got a few of those folks and I just love to be with them. And I'm going to decide I want to be with them more this year. Now, alternatively... Bring to mind the unhappiest, most joy-challenged person you know. Think of somebody who's, you know, kind of negative, kind of a complainer, bit of a martyr, usually says no to stuff. Think about that person. Okay, don't look at him. Don't poke him in the ribs or anything like that. Just think about him. Because nobody wants to spend more time with that person, right? You think about places. What is the happiest place on earth? Yeah, I know. Some people say Disney World, right? Disney World, the happiest place. Well, I'll tell you, I love the idea of going to Disney World a lot more than I actually like going to Disney World. Because I can remember, this is some years ago now, I think it was for my, one of my parents' significant anniversaries. They, they took me and my, my sister, my brother, and our families all when our kids were kind of little. And we all went to Disney World. And I think it was in July. Because that's when their anniversary was. And it was about 120 degrees. And the hour, the, the wait in the line was like an hour and a half. The kids were miserable. They were getting sick because it was so hot. And we got mad. You know, I, man, you know. And I said to the kids, you understand how much grandma and grandpa paid for you to be here and for us to be here? So you stand in line and you wait for two hours and you ride on the rides and you'll be happy. Or I'll give you something to be happy about. 
You know, most, the most effective parenting line ever, right? You say that thing. But, you know, so often life is just this way, isn't it? This is a great quote from a woman named Charlotte Bronte. She said, life is so constructed that the event does not, cannot, will not match the expectation. It just will never live up to it. I want it to turn out this way, but then it doesn't. And then I was thinking about the church. You know, thinking about us, this these communities of God's people. What if the church, what if this place became the happiest place on earth? You know, what if we just became famous for joy? And that when people came in here, whether they were a stranger or unchurched or their life was a bit of a mess, as everybody's is, they just came in here and said, wow, this bunch of people who just want to be here. They're just joy filled. What if all of us reached our God given joy potential as human beings? Now, that would be a place to be a part of, wouldn't it? That would be an awesome community. What if when people heard the word Christian, instead of thinking judgmental or proud or something like that, they just thought joyful. Now, the Bible says that a joyful heart is like good medicine. Isn't that right? A joyful heart. Just that attitude in life can be like just great medicine. Really important, I think, for everybody to find joy in their life. It's important to laugh. It's important to laugh in church occasionally. You know, occasionally. We want to pursue joy. I do. You do. Because there are just a lot of reasons these days not to be happy, right? Look at your circumstances. Turn on the news. A lot of reasons to just be discouraged and unhappy. So maybe a good New Year's resolution would be, hey, I just want to pursue joy this year because that maybe can be sustained. I was reading a little bit this week and uh, mental mental health experts say, and this is kind of shocking, say that depression is about 10 times more common in our day than it was in the 1960s even though we're a lot richer and we're better educated. But we're richer, smarter, sad people. They say that the average age for the onset of depression in 1960 was 29 and a half. This shocked me. They said that today it's 14 and a half. That stunned me. 14-year-old kids should not have to carry this weight around. There's something wrong. And so we want to pursue joy. Uh, Paul writes a letter with exactly that theme, the theme of joy, and it's the book of Philippians. Uh, In this little book, there's only four, I'm not going to read the whole thing tonight, but in this four-chapter book, Paul actually mentions joy, rejoice, or rejoicing. He mentions it 16 times in four little chapters. Maybe one of the things you could do is to maybe just read through the entire book of Philippians, which I'm not going to do tonight, but you could read through the entire book of Philippians, all four chapters in one sitting. It'll take you probably 10 or 15 minutes. 
That's it. Just do it in one sitting. And maybe the next day, do it again. And maybe a couple days after that, do it again. And just let this theme of joy soak into you as you listen to Paul write this letter. Let me just read a few verses. I'm just going to start the very beginning of Philippians 1. If you want to follow along, you may, uh, but right at the beginning of Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with Joy, it's the first time it's mentioned in the letter. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you. Now this joy, this joy-filled life. Since I have you in my heart, for whether I am in chains or defending or confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I'm just going to stop right there for tonight that far, but then towards the end of the book of Philippians in chapter 4, maybe you know that well-known phrase, right? Paul encourages these people. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. He says, again, I say it. I want you to rejoice And one thing that's amazing is that when Paul writes this letter, when he writes this letter, he's in prison. He's in chains. He's under guard, but he just can't stop writing about joy. Now, there's a little phrase at the very beginning of this letter that that kind of is a kind of a secret to sort of hidden joy. It occurs in the very first line of this whole letter. Generally, in the ancient world, letters would begin with kind of a simple formula, you know, kind of like we start letters, you know, dear so-and-so, you know, we write the letter. But in that day, in the ancient world, they would start a letter kind of from X to Y, greetings to you. Now, most often when Paul wrote, he would include a little title about himself. Like when he wrote to the church in Ephesus, he said, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. When he wrote to Timothy, again, he said, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. When he writes to the folks in Corinth, he says that again, Paul, an apostle. But it's interesting here in this letter to Philippi, he uses a different word to describe himself. Did you see it? Didn't say Paul, an apostle. He says, Paul, a what? A servant. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Not apostle, servants. Now, why does he describe himself here as a servant? Well, uh, because this community of Philippi, which he's writing to, was a very elite community. It was actually sort of a, a, a colony of the Roman Empire. And, and, and historians say that Rome was the most status-conscious, status-obsessed society in the ancient world. And Philippi was kind of an outpost. It was a Roman colony. If you were a citizen of Philippi, you were a citizen of Rome. 
And it may be the most status conscious community in the whole empire. It was built on the pursuit of honor and self-advancement and all that kind of stuff. In Philippi, to be happy was to climb the ladder to the top. And so Paul starts this letter to the Philippians by using a word that nobody in the Roman Empire would ever use to describe themselves. Nobody. He says, I'm a servant. Now, now literally, he actually uses the word for slave. I'm a slave. About as far down the ladder as you can go. He says, I'm not the master of a pleasant life. I'm not the ruler of a successful life. But I'm a servant of a great cause. And that brings us to what might be called the happiness paradox. And this would be at the core of, of this whole pursuit of joy if you actually go on this. But, but here's the paradox when it comes to this. I will never be happy if the ultimate goal of my life is for me to be happy. <laughs> Did you hear that one? That's kind of the happiness paradox. I will never ever be happy if I make the ultimate goal of my life, you know, this year, 2015, or whatever it is, to be happy. You're just not going to get there. Happiness is one of those things that comes as a byproduct of when we're pursuing something else, something bigger, something better. Turns out there's something that's way more important, way more significant, way better than the happy life, and it's what might be called the meaningful life. Something better than happy. It's meaningful. And there's a difference between pursuing happy and pursuing meaningful. If you just pursue happy, it turns out that ends up to be very shallow, very self-centered, and it doesn't ultimately pay off. You know, people think, man, I'll be happy. I really will. If things just go well, if my needs are met, if, if I'll be happy if my desires are satisfied. I'll be happy if I can just avoid pain and everybody likes me. Well, then I just focus on my own circumstances. And that's not going to work. People think, man, if I just get this job, then I'll be happy. Then they get the job and all kinds of pressure and stress and challenges come along. And I'll just be happy if I retire. And they retire and, oh, man, then something else comes along. See, when people get to the end of their lives... It turns out that meaning matters. Not so much happiness. It turns out meaning matters. God has made us and wired us so that we will actually grow in sustainable joy when meaning is increased in our lives. In other words, if you aim at meaning, you get happiness thrown in for free. But if you aim at happiness, you will get neither happiness nor meaning. That's the deal. And so if we want to achieve our potential as Christ followers, we have to pursue meaning in our lives. And then you get joy thrown in. So here we go. I'm going to give you a few tips. What do I have, like an hour and a half? Okay. Uh, no, just kidding. People think, well, if the lions just won, I'd be happy. But, of course, you don't care because you're here right now. They're, pl they're playing right now, okay? I'm just saying. All right. Here we go. Just a few things. Number one, joy comes 
when I actually practice acts of kindness and generosity. Joy comes when I practice acts of kindness and generosity. Joy doesn't come when people do for me what I want. But rather when I do for other people what they need. And that's what Paul is going for here in this Philippians letter with this ladder climbing culture. He actually says, why don't y'all try doing it the other way around? He says, Chapter 2, in your relationships with each other, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, actually took on the nature of a servant. He climbed down the ladder, not up the ladder, and that's where meaning comes. Just a cup of cold water, just little things like that. Just a weird truth about us. We think we'll be happy when we get what we want. But actually, both happy and meaning turn out to be what we give. It just does. Jesus says, just a cup of cold water in my name. And it turns out that joy is actually associated more with what we give. It just really is. So here's your assignment this week or this month. Or this year, or maybe for the rest of your life. Here's your assignment. Cup of cold water deal. Do an act of kindness for somebody. Maybe write it down. Maybe plan it. Maybe think about it. Maybe strategize about it if you want to. But do an act of kindness. And start with the people that are closest to you. You know, find something just small. Maybe just for your kids. Or maybe for kids, for your parents. How's that? Think about that. And then, you know, pray about it. And then you can do it tomorrow or this week or something like that. Just small stuff. Just do it. Run an errand for somebody at home and do it with joy. It'll be awesome. Voluntarily help somebody with a project at work. If you really want to have fun, go to somebody at work that you don't really get along with that well. You know, that difficult person, that kind of cranky person or so on, and do them a favor for no reason at all. (laughs) It'll be great. Take brownies to your neighbor and just say, you know, I was thinking about you today, this week, made these brownies, thought you might like them. Here you go. Have a nice day. I'll tell you, it's awesome. Visit somebody in a nursing home. Go see them. You will light them up. And in turn, they will light you up. And that's just the way it goes. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard from people, and maybe you have too, people who give themselves this way, right? And they sink themselves into service or do an act of kindness, and they come back and they almost always say this. They almost always say, I got more out of it than I actually gave. I thought I was helping them, and it turned out they were helping me. So there's your assignment this week. Go find somebody in your neighborhood, at your school, somebody who's alone, somebody who's lonely, just somebody who's hurting, and give them a cup of cold water. Because then there's meaning. And then the joy comes. See? That's how it works. All right, number two. Here's another thing. Suffering can interrupt the happy life, right? I mean, it just does. Suffering can interrupt the happy life, but suffering is powerless to stop the meaningful life. Suffering can interrupt your happy life, but it is powerless 
to do anything against the meaningful life. And I guess it's important that we just talk for a minute, you know, kind of about suffering. You think, well, what do you mean? Talking about joy. What do you, what do you bring up suffering for? You know, because you look at our world and it is, it is, it's troubling sometimes, isn't it? I mean, you look at what's going on, you know, this summer with the Ebola thing, and then there's, you know, Ferguson, Missouri, and now New York City, and you just look at people's different reactions to all this, and you wonder, wow, what's going on? Or you look at, you know, Gaza, or Ukraine, or the rise of ISIS, and all that going on in the Middle East, and then you think about Jesus saying, love your enemies. Any thoughtful person... Anybody with their eyes open has to ask, with this much suffering and pain and evil in the world, is it even right to talk about joy? Is joy even possible? Should we even be thinking about that? And then it turns out, when you look at the Bible, when you look at the gospel, when you look at different people in the Bible, we find this odd thing where there is great joy in the midst of great suffering. And it's unstoppable. That's why we can talk about suffering and joy. The test of authentic joy is that it is compatible with deep suffering. It's like those little flowers popping up in the cracks on the sidewalk, right? You can't stop it. In the book of Acts, you know, we we read about Paul when he actually went and visited the people in Philippi. And when he was actually in Philippi with the people there, they didn't treat him all that great. When he was there, he ran into huge opposition. He was falsely accused. He was arrested. He was stripped of his clothes. He was beaten. In fact, it says he was severely beaten. He was arrested. He was thrown in jail. He put his, they put his feet in the stocks. And then we read in Acts chapter 16, under these circumstances, under these conditions, we read in Acts 16, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Arrested, beaten, humiliated, stripped in prison, and actually singing hymns to God. And it says, and the other prisoners were listening to them. I love that they throw that line in there because like what are the other prisoners actually going to do, right? Hey, you guys, shut up. What's going on? In elite Philippi, in the middle of wealth and status and ladder climbing, two prisoners make a dungeon the happiest place on earth. It's amazing. How should we respond to suffering? Should we just throw up our hands and say, well, that's the way it goes. Might as well just be depressed today. It's never going to happen. Well, no. Actually, the response to suffering isn't hopelessness. It's usefulness. It's not despair at what's going on. It's determination to make a difference. And we can do that. If you are useful, that will bring meaning. And that will bring perspective to your suffering. It really will. Uh, I was kind of following somebody in the blogosphere these days. You know, you can read these blogs and people post stuff and write stuff. But this happens to be by a guy named Steve Hainer. 
don't know if you've heard of Steve Hayner, know of him or so on like that, but for many years he was the head of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and then he became chairman of the board for the International Justice Mission. So he's an important guy that's held a lot of important jobs in the Christian community. And a few months ago, he was diagnosed with a terrible disease, pancreatic cancer. And it's just about as bad as it can get you know, under those circumstances. And he's been posting about this, and I've sort of been, you know, following it and kind of see what he says about this. And he is, admits it, struggling with depression. And he just writes about this openly. And so this is what he wrote just a few days ago. He says, so what is there to do in dark times? The first thing is not to be afraid or embarrassed to identify it. Unfortunately, in our culture, he says, there is kind of a shame connected with depression as if we should never experience it. And after all, I'm the guy who signs every letter with joyfully. But joy is dependent on who I am and how I am loved more than on my circumstances. Then he writes this. It is happiness that takes a hit when my circumstances go bad, not joy. Our circumstances are just too variable to be the foundation of our daily feelings about life. But truth always opens the door to a new life. So I would rather face darkness full on than try to put on yet another happy mask. And that's just kind of what he writes. No happy mask. But what he has is joy. What he has is meaning. What he has is purpose. And meaning is going to win. The psalmist says, weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. And I don't know when it's going to come for you. You know, maybe it'll come tomorrow, maybe it'll come next week, maybe next year, maybe at the resurrection, but it's coming. So hold on. Suffering can stop happy, but it's powerless against meaning. Okay, number three. Meaning comes when I invest most deeply in what matters most, which is relationships with people. Meaning comes when I invest myself into what matters most, and that's investing yourself into people. What matters more than anything else to God, what more matters more than anything else in life is people. People matter to God, and they matter to Paul. Paul says here at the beginning of this letter, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. I think of you. I remember you, and I thank my God because of you. And again, he was in Philippi. He he was filled with all kinds of memories that wouldn't make me very grateful. You know, prison and beating and all the rest. But apparently they make Paul grateful. He says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Mostly, life is about relationships. Nobody has unhappy relationships and a happy life. And nobody has joy-filled, meaningful relationships and a joyless life. It's just all about people. This is so true. 
Uh, this was a study done in the Journal of Socioeconomics. So not a Christian thing or anything like that, but a study done in the Journal of Socioeconomics. And they found that changes in people's income. Oh, man, how we live for that, right? How we die for that. It says changes in people's income, monetary level, actually bring very little happiness. Again, this, is, this was a secular study. It says an increase in the level of relational involvement in your life, a deepening of connection and relationship is worth $100,000 a year in life satisfaction. Getting money doesn't make your happiness level go up, but getting meaningful relationships gives you $100,000 worth of satisfaction for a year. Now, let's give you a little application on this one. Maybe after the service, if, if you will give me $80,000, I'll be your friend. <laughs> and you'll come out $20,000 ahead. So that'll be that way. No. See, Paul financially, dirt poor. Relationally, filthy rich. This is Paul's life. This is, the, this is life and the reality of the kingdom of God. Every time I remember you, says Paul, I'm grateful. Thank you, God. Thank you for so-and-so. Thank you, God. Every time I pray for you, it makes me joyful. You know, so think about it. Are you spending as much time building meaningful relationships as you are spending time trying to be successful and make money? When I'm with people, do I actually experience gratitude? Do I thank God for meaningful relationships? Paul says, I'm grateful for your partnership in the gospel as we work together towards something meaningful and purposeful. I mean, that's what the church is all about, isn't it? These relationships right here with each other as we engage together in meaningful work for the Lord, that's where joy comes and that's where you should be sinking yourself. All right, last one, then we're done. Number four, the happy life is rooted in, uh, is rooted in where you are in your circumstances, financially, vocationally, or physically. The happy life is rooted in finances, job, physical health, but the meaningful life is rooted in where you are spiritually. Happy life is rooted in circumstances. Of course, those can change in a minute. But the meaningful life is rooted in where you are spiritually. Really interesting, at the beginning of this letter, Paul says that he's writing, and the phrase is, to the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. In other words, yeah, you're in Philippi geographically, but you're not buying into that mindset. I'm not buying into it, not into that culture, but you're in Christ Jesus spiritually. And there's just a very interesting relationship between happiness and place. In our day, people will pay a ton, put a lot of emphasis on, you know, where you live. And so I actually saw this study as well. Researchers wanted to know, who's happier? People who live in California or people who live in the Midwest? Who do you think? Yeah, well, it's interesting. They, they asked everybody these two questions. They asked them two questions. How satisfied are you with your overall life? And then how satisfied are you with your weather? <laughs> All right. Now, everybody, 
even Midwesterners thought that Californians would be happier with their overlaw all life. But they were not. They were not. It turns out Midwesterners, people who live in Grand Rapids, us, we are just as happy with our overall lives as Californians are. We are. Now, Midwesterners are much unhappier about their weather, unhappier about their summertime weather, really unhappy about their wintertime weather. But why is that? Why is it that Midwesterners are not less happy than Californians with their overall life? It's because there is just no place. There is no circumstance. There is no external situation. Money, health, beauty, not even the beach in California that can bring lasting internal happiness and joy. Paul says the location that really matters is not where you live on the earth, but it's your spiritual location. Paul says if you're really a follower of Jesus Christ and you are a meaning-filled servant of God, you're just temporarily living in Philippi. You're just temporarily living in wherever you are. But that's not your mindset. That's not your way of life. What matters is your spiritual location. Are you in Jesus Christ? See, that's what matters. Because I may have trouble this year. There may be debt. There may be suffering. There may be a hospital bed. But if I'm in Christ Jesus, I'm good to go. I'm good to go anywhere. And that's the good news of the gospel. Paul says, if your spiritual location is in Christ Jesus, your geographical location can be any place on earth and your ultimate well-being is not at risk. Not at all. Not one bit. Because joy is not a feeling. It is not the same thing as being in a good mood. You know, the Bible actually never says, be in a good mood. But it does say, pursue joy. And you know what? Joy is what Jesus came to give. Jesus said, I have told you this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy might be complete. Just running out your ears, complete, overflowing with joy. And that's what I want to pursue this year. And that's the kind of person I want to be. Actually, if we do that, we're being just like God. Because we're told that the God of joy became a man of sorrows. So that we sorrowful sinners might become children of joy. And when he came here, you know what happened. They tried him, they beat him, they crucified him, they put him on a cross, they cut him down, they buried him. And on the third day, God said to our sorry, sinful, dark world, I'll give you something to be happy about. And a tomb, the ultimate symbol of death and despair and defeat, became that day the happiest place on earth. And that's our Jesus. And that's what we can do as followers of his. So I hope this year you will do more than just make resolutions to get thinner or make more money or go on a nicer vacation. I hope that you will make a resolution to pursue joy and meaning. And that you would do some of these things and put them in place maybe to do that. You know, acts of kindness and generosity. Joy is going to come. 
find joy in the midst of suffering as you understand you are being useful. This is meaningful to somebody. Invest yourself in relationships with people and joy will come. And be rooted spiritually in Christ Jesus. Joy will come. Jesus said it would. Let's pray. God, I just pray for all of us in this room tonight. You know, there's some of us that are just filled with gratitude because wonderful things are going on, great relationships, satisfaction in our work, wonderful friendships, wonderful opportunities. And so for those things, Lord, we say thank you. Thank you. But then, God, there are people facing really big difficulties. There's death. There's loss of health, there's problems, there's pain. And God, in, in, in the midst of those circumstances, just our, our one hope in that moment is Jesus. Jesus, who himself, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross and scorned its shame. So God, would you bring joy into every heart here tonight, into every circumstance? A joy that transcends our circumstances that death itself cannot defeat. And so right now, God, we just commit ourselves to pursuing joy. To pursuing your kind of life. The life that you came to give us. I pray, Lord, that that will happen for us as we invest ourselves into it. In Jesus' name we pray.